As we have been doing since September, we're going through 1st and 2nd Samuel. We find ourselves this morning in 2nd Samuel 11 and 2nd Samuel 12. We are up to a passage of Scripture that theologians refer to as a VeggieTales passage of Scripture, meaning it is a story that at one point in history has been turned into a VeggieTales cartoon. That's always a challenge. Because if you've seen it, the entire time we're talking about David and Bathsheba, you're going to be thinking of Larry the Cucumber and his rubber ducky. And if you haven't seen it, check it out after. Yeah, or daring. It doesn't even bother me. Just use headphones if you would. In 1998, NFL rookie Robert Edwards heard that thing that every aspiring football player hopes to hear. He was at the NFL draft and the commissioner of the NFL announced the New England Patriots select Robert Edwards. I mean, the thrill. I mean, he was, he was excited. He was beyond excited. His rookie year with the NFL team, New England Patriots, he rushed as a running back for over 1,000 yards. Pretty good. First-year guy. He is invited to the NFL Pro Bowl rookie game, which is a flag football game. He suffers a debilitating knee injury that nearly requires the amputation of his leg. He's able to return to football after numerous surgery. He never plays well again. Ends up in the Canadian Football League. I don't mean that bad for any Canadians, but it is. <laughs> um, he's never the same. Never the same. So he receives that promise. That promise is announced to him over loudspeakers. The Patriots select and a promise. Now, all of a sudden, he's living in the promise of an NFL career, the promising life of a pro football player, and experiences in the midst of the life of promise a disappointing failure. Why? How many times do you think, why did I ever go to that stupid flag football game. So I have a question for you in light of that. What do you do when your life, or what do we do when our lives don't live up to the promises God has made us? God has made numerous promises, and we live under a covenant promise in Christ as believers. But what do we do when we, in the midst of living under that covenant, we look at our life and say, um, my life is not like what this promise is like. Just like that football player lying in a hospital room, hoping his leg would still be there in the morning, is saying, this is not the life of an NFL player. These don't line up. And what do we do when we live a life of promise in Christ, and our life doesn't live up to that promise? That's the title of the message today, A Life of promise. And we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. So if you want to flip back one chapter to 2 Samuel 11, we'll begin there. And here's how I want to title this chapter. David, a life of promise, so promising and so disappointing. A life of promise, chapter 11, so promising 
and so disappointing. David in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, just four chapters earlier, God had appeared to David and said, David, I will put onto your throne your son, and his throne will endure how long? Forever. I mean, four chapters earlier, God had made a promise to David that his throne would endure forever. God has made a covenant with David. In fact, we call it the Davidic covenant. It's one of the most important covenants in the Bible, second only maybe to the new covenant in Christ. In fact, coming on the heels of this covenant, what, what does David do in 2 Samuel chapter 9? He then goes to his enemy, Mephibosheth. Do you remember Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the, the grandson of King Saul? And David says to himself, I made a covenant with my friend Jonathan. I will show kindness to his children. And so he invites Mephibosheth into his court, and Mephibosheth eats at David's table just like one of David's sons. Now, what would have normally been done to a grandson of a former king? Kill him. David, moved by God's promises and his own covenant with Jonathan, not only spares Mephibosheth, but he lifts him up. Then what does he do when, when his arch enemy, longtime enemy, the Ammonites, the king of the Ammonites die, instead of sending a delegation to conquer the Ammonites, he sends a delegation to express heartfelt mourning and pity to this historical enemy of Israel. The covenant of God moving in David's life is moving him to be uh, similar to God in these ways. Now, the Ammonites reject David's overtures, and their animosity once again is kicked up. So you might think, if you're reading 2 Samuel, when you get to 2 Samuel 7, and God makes this great covenant promise to David, you might be thinking David's uh, spiritual trajectory is going to go for the moon. It's just going to go up and up from here, and in fact, at some point, he's just going to get on a stairway and walk right into God's presence in heaven, right? So let me explain something to you. If you want David to be the hero of 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel I should say, then do not read any of it after 2 Samuel 10. Just get to 10, finish it, close it, and put it down. Don't tear the pages out. That would feel weird. But if you want David to be the hero, do not read after 2 Samuel 10. Because 2 Samuel 11 to the end of the book is a story of decline, unfaithfulness, and departure. So what happens in 2 Samuel 11? It was the springtime. That's normally when kings would go off to war. Uh, just because it's easier to do so. The roads aren't as muddy. It's easier to get your horses on the move and your baggage carts on the move. It's easier to collect food for the army on the way they can forage in the forest because there will be uh, trees bearing fruit and uh, food in the forest to harvest. When you're walking through enemy territory, you can help yourself to their crops. So spring is a great time to go uh, to war, and they were going back to the Ammonites uh, to destroy them for their animosity. In fact, Joab, the general of David's armies, has great success in destroying all of the Ammonites, and all that's left now is Rabbah, the capital of the Ammonite uh, people, which is at, probably at current, uh, the modern city at, the, at Rabbah is Amman, Jordan. So the kings go off to war, except for David stays home. 
We all, I don't think we ought to make too much of David staying home. There's a certain point in David's life where the men wanted David to stay home because he was actually a, a liability on the battlefield. Certainly, perhaps, he should be leading his men. But of all the horrible things he does in 2 Samuel chapter 11, are we really concerned about the fact he took a break and stayed home? I mean, he's going to commit adultery and kill a guy. I don't want to give away the story, but maybe you've heard it. I think him staying home from the battle of this day is not the worst thing he did. It might not have been the best thing he could have done in that moment. But think of that. We've often said, said it this way. Now I'm off script, so I'm about to get in trouble, which is more fun for all of us. <laughs> David had a heart of adultery and murder. How do I know that? Because he committed adultery and killed a guy. So do you think that heart of adultery and murder would have somehow not accompanied him into war? Listen, the guy was going to figure out how to kill somebody and commit adultery. It was in his heart. He's going to admit as much later. So the biggest issue David had at this point wasn't that he stayed home. The bigger issue was he had a heart problem, and we're going to see this clearly. So David stayed home. It was probably very warm. He gets up late in the afternoon, and he observes Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her home. And his heart is enticed at her beauty and at the fact that she was wearing nothing. He sends for her and says, bring her to me. You could probably guess what he had in mind. I don't think anybody was fooled by it, least of all his servant. Oh, certainly David just wants to call her to play chess. Who is this woman? And the servant reports to him, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the daughter of Ahithophel. She is married to Uriah, the Hittite. We'll discover in 2 Samuel 23 about these three men. This is incredibly important, so please disregard what's on the screens. <laughs> Not Guardians of the Galaxy. If you can't get it fixed, you can just turn them off. What we discover in 2 Samuel 23, 2 Samuel 23 is the listing of David's mighty men. Three of David's mighty men, and then 30 more of David's mighty men. Three of David's mighty men are listed, one of whom on a snowy day went into a pit and killed a lion. He had nothing else to do. Dudes were studs. Three of those 30 mighty men were, or two of those 30 mighty men, number one of them, Eliam, Bathsheba's father. Who else is one of those 30 mighty men? Last verse, 2 Samuel 23, Uriah the Hittite. Who was Eliam's father? Ahithophel. We didn't know anything about Ahithophel. He hasn't showed up in 2 Samuel yet, but he will. He's going to be a key player when his son rebels against him. Ahithophel is David's most cherished advisor. In fact, the Bible is going to tell us in 2 Samuel 15, the words of Ahithophel were like the words of God himself. That's how brilliant he was. And David said, oh, who's this woman? Uh, she's Bathsheba, David. Uriah's wife? Oh, is she? Bring her to me. I mean, the treachery of this. He knows all three of these guys, not in passing. These are three men who have staked their lives on the life and purpose of the king by God. He throws all of that into the trash bin for a one-night fling. 
with Bathsheba. We discover in there that she had just cleansed herself from ritual uncleanness associated with her monthly cycle, which tells us what? She's at the best time possible to get pregnant, and she does, because I don't know if you know this, the Bible is not rated PG-13, it's rated R. They do, in fact, have sex, and she does, in fact, get pregnant, because that's how it works. She sends word to David, I am pregnant, and David now becomes very concerned. Is he concerned that his secret might be known? Well, perhaps so, but he's already involved most of his servants. But it's going to be very inconvenient to have a a royal son that's not born to one of his wives. So he hatches a plan to bring Uriah home that he might also sleep with his wife. So the assumption would be made that the baby is, in fact, Uriah. So he sends word to Joab, and and Uriah is sent back from Rabbah to report to King David what's going on with the battle. Now imagine this. There are runners that work for David in his military. Why do they work for David as runners? To run messages back and forth between the general and David. Why do they have that job? Because they're horrible in the actual fighting part. Uriah, one of his 30 great warriors, is dispatched by Joab to to bring a report to David. And David makes sort of, so what's going on with the battle, Uriah? And he sort of makes a show of it. The whole time Uriah is sitting there thinking, you have runners for this. And David says, thanks you for the report. Listen, while you're here, why don't you go home, uh, get freshened up, uh, go see Bathsheba. And everybody knows what they're talking about. Go see Bathsheba. He even sends a basket with chocolates and champagne. He sends a gift of some kind. It was probably something very strange from that culture. It was probably a live goat or something. And what does Uriah do? Uriah does not go home. He goes down to the servants' quarters and stays there. David discovers that the next morning and and says, Uriah, why didn't you go home and enjoy the company of your wife and the comfort of your own bed and the, the taste of your favorite meal? And he says, there's no way I would do that, David. That is not how we roll. If you remember back uh, to 1 Samuel 21, David had mustered his men and was fleeing to go do battle, and the prophet and the priest asked David specifically as they were going to war, what did he ask them? Have your men be kept from women, women, their wives? And he said, yes, because that's the way we always do it. When we're about God's business, we fast from the comforts of home, so that we are only devoted to God and His purposes. And Uriah says, David, go home and be with my wife. That is not what we do, David. We are uh, set apart unto God's purposes right now. I will not go home. So David, undeterred in his evil and his wickedness, decides to convince Uriah to go home and sleep with his own wife by getting him wasted. How do you get a guy to do what you want him to do? Get him liquored up. So David and Uriah spend the night drinking. And sure enough, the Bible tells us Uriah got a little tipsy. No, he was, he was gone. You drink it with the king. If the king hands you a glass of wine, do you not drink it? To your, de- your detriment, you might. And the Bible says Uriah got drunk. And so Uriah, inebriated as he was, probably helped by a servant out of the house, went where for the night? To the servants' quarters. Drunk out of his gourd, he still will not go home to his wife. 
One author has put it this way, Uriah has more honored drunk than David does sober. So now there's a new plan. David writes out a note, Dear Joab, attack Rabbah, put Uriah at the head. When the fighting is fierce, retreat from him that he might die. He folds up the note, seals it with his ring, and hands it to who? Uriah. I imagine, because I like to imagine, he gave him a warm embrace as his king. Walk slow, Uriah. Both of us have a bit of a headache this morning. Drink lots of fluids. Uriah, as a faithful servant, delivers the note to Joab, and the plan goes as such. Joab embellishes it a bit. He realizes that if Uriah is out front and they all back off of Uriah, everybody's going to know something's going on. So Joab embellishes the plan a little bit. What does he do? He leaves everybody out front so many men die, including Uriah. This whole scheme of things reminds us of a story that happens in 1 Kings 21. The queen Jezebel is irritated that somebody will not sell a grapevine to her husband, King Ahab. Ahab was doing what Ahab does best, pitching a little uh, toddler fit. And the queen sent to a note to the owner of this field saying, listen, invite the field owner to a meeting at town hall and we'll entice somebody to accuse him of blasphemy and drag him outside and stone him to death, which they did. And then the field became Ahab's. Why is it that David here feels more like Jezebel than he does like Samuel or Moses? Joab dispatches a runner to report back to David what has happened. At the end of the passage, I'm going to read it, at the end of 2 Samuel 11. This is David's response. David told the messenger who had just informed him that many men had died, including Uriah. And David said to the messenger, take this message to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife Bathsheba heard he was dead, she mourned for him and eventually was brought to David as his wife. The outcome of 2 Samuel 11, we can summarize this way. David was pleased with the outcome. Last sentence. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David was pleased with the way things had finally gone. He had the woman he had wanted. His competitor for this woman, her husband, is dead, and no one is the wiser to his scheming. That is, no one other than God, and God is very uh, displeased. I want you to remember back, just before we move on, to 2 Samuel 7. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And the promise was that his throne would endure forever. His son would uh, sit on the throne forever. God would lift up David and, and make David's name great. I want to ask you this question for you to think about for just a minute. 
Why did God make that promise to David? What was the outcome he was hoping to accomplish? God has made this great covenant with David, and, and, and why did God make that covenant with David? What did he hope would occur as a result of that? Would he hope that because of his great covenant with David, David's behavior would be good? Keep his nose clean? Or at least not do any of the really bad sins, like we read about in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, maybe God uh, made the covenant with David in order to uh, gin up in David a greater sense of loyalty to God himself. Is that why God gave David the great covenant? Maybe, perhaps, well, maybe perhaps God uh, gave this great covenant to David so that uh, David, finally, under this covenant, uh, could live up to his potential. God saw this great potential in David. Sure, he's just a shepherd, but he could use shepherding skills in leading the people of Israel. So in giving this great covenant to David, maybe he could finally live up to his potential, right? David knew none of those things were the answer. God did not give this covenant to David so he would behave better. He didn't give this covenant to David so that David would have greater loyalty, nor did he give the covenant to David that David might live up to his potential. David said this in 2 Samuel 7 regarding this covenant, Who am I, God? He said, Why would you make this covenant with me? Do you have any idea who I am? God, I am nobody. I am not worthy of this covenant. David knows that the promise God has made to David had nothing to do with David. So here's a statement I want to make, and you can decide if you believe it or not. God's promises, or as we say, God's covenants, are not designed to get us to do something. Rather, God's promise is God promising to do something. God's covenant with David was not designed to get him to do something. God's promise was God saying, I will do something. And there's a difference between the two. You understand the difference. It's critically important. God is not thinking, David, I made this great promise to you. I thought you would obey now. What God is saying and what he's going to make clear in 2 Samuel 12 verse 9 is, David, why don't you love me? Why do you despise me? What we have to understand is that God is going to show us that his promise, in fact, to David is not dependent on David. God's promise to David is not dependent on David. As we discover in 2 Samuel 11 and his murderous adultery with Bathsheba, God still, I should say, did I say God? David still needs God, doesn't he? It's pretty clear this guy hasn't figured life out yet. It also tells us that God is something up to something much bigger than just trying to get David to keep his nose clean or to live up to his potential. God is up to something much bigger than David just being a model king or a model uh, follower of God. God is up to something much bigger than David, in fact. God's promise is not designed to make David good. So what is God up to? God's purpose is to fix the universe. He is going to bring a redeemer through David's line that will finally renew this busted up place. I don't know if you noticed, but the world is broken. 
these beautiful flowers, these roses were provided to us by Lou Benjamin as yesterday we celebrated the fact that his wife is home with the Lord. Praise God. But his grief and his family's grief tells us something's not right here. It's busted. God did not make the Davidic covenant with David merely to get the best out of David. He made the Davidic covenant because he has a plan to fix everything that's broken. David and his life is small potatoes compared to what God is really up to. God's promise to David is not dependent on David, and I would actually suggest God's promise to David is not primarily about David. David's life of promise, so promising, so disappointing. Chapter 12. So disappointing, yet so much grace. A life of promise. Chapter 11, so promising, yet so disappointing. Chapter 12, so disappointing, yet so much grace. As it turns out, God knows of David's sin. God was there the whole time. He saw it happen. He knows the whole deal. And so he sends his prophet Nathan to explain to David, by the way, David, God knows everything that went on. As one commentator said about Nathan's comment to David, it may be the most dramatic sentence in the Bible, you are the man. What's stunning about this is God's comment to David. He says to David, listen, David, you wanted, uh, you wanted power, you wanted money, you wanted a, a, a bucket load of wives, and what does God say about all of those things? This is unbelievable. Almost feels a little weird for God to say it. David, I gave it all to you. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you riches, and I gave you all of Saul's wives. I gave you everything. Anything your heart ever desired, David, I poured upon you, but you despised me for it. What actually happened to David, happens to all of us, is he worshipped God, but at a certain point in his life, he shifted his gaze from God who gives great things to the, the things God gives. And his worship was no longer focused on the God who was generous, but on the gift that God had given. And David said, God even said to David, if you wanted more, I could have given it. But David, you had plenty. How is it, David, that you took your eyes off me, the good one who has given you these things, and focused instead on merely the appetites of your gut? I don't know if you've ever thrown rocks into a pond. I hope you have. If you haven't, you should. But here's a silly story. Say, for example, you're standing at the pond with your dad, and he's fishing. If you've ever been fishing with your dad as a young boy, you want to throw rocks, and he does not want you to throw rocks. So, of course, what do you want to do even more? Just throw rocks. If you throw small rocks, then what do you have to do? You have to throw bigger rocks. I mean, got to make the big splash. I don't know if you've noticed what happens when you throw a rock, but you throw a rock into the water. It uh, splashes, and then ripples go out from that rock. It's especially fun if, if the pond is extremely still. And God says, David, you have thrown a big rock into a small pond, and if you look, David, the ripples from this stone 
are going all the way across it and are hitting the other shore. War will never leave your life. You have brought on yourself a battle. You will never be at peace, and a ripple goes out. And then God says, another ripple comes out of that rock dropped into the pond. You will have a calamity visit you that is unbelievable. David, one will come into your home and take your wives, but unlike you who did your thing in secret, he will set up a tent on the roof of your home and do his thing in public. Another ripple goes out. Just a side note on that, we won't get to that until 2 Samuel 15, but Absalom, David's son, uh, executes a successful coup and David is run out of his kingdom. And Absalom is trying to figure out his next move as he stands in the palace and he turns to an advisor and says, what do you think I should do? And who is that advisor standing with him? It is the oracle of God himself, Ahithophel. Who is Ahithophel's granddaughter? Any reminders? Bathsheba. What was Ahithophel's advice to Absalom? Take David's wives up onto the roof, pitch a tent, and do to them what he did to my granddaughter. I mixed the words up there to make the point. It is not surprising that Ahithophel is the one who gave Absalom that advice because Ahithophel's granddaughter is the one that David had taken. See how those ripples go out across that pond? And they never seem to stop. Calamity and war. The darkest of hours of David's life. At the beginning of the film, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, the narrator begins with this phrase regarding the ring of power. Is there like more than four people who have ever seen this film in the room? Because this is going to be really horrible if only like six of us have seen it. I hope you've seen it or at least read the books. But the ring of power is this evil ring that is always seeking to be connected with Saruman, its master, that they might once again conquer Middle Earth with all kinds of evil. And the ring is being held by a creature, Gollum. And this is what the narrator said. The ringer had found an opportunity to once again be reunited with its master, and it abandoned Gollum. Listen, but something happened then the ring did not intend. I can't do the voice of the lady who does it, so you're going to have to just have that in your head. It was picked up by the most unlikely creature imaginable, a hobbit, Bilbo Baggins of the Shire, for the time will come when hobbits will shape the fortunes of us all. Cut scene to Frodo Baggins sitting in a meadow. You've seen it. Okay. All of a sudden, something happens that evil did not intend. And that's what happens right here in David's life. Something happens when it's as dark as it could possibly be. Something happens that, that no one could have predicted. I have sinned against the Lord. David, in that moment, merely says, I am that man. I have sinned against the Lord. 
In 2 Samuel 11, verse 13, it's only one sentence. It's so short, it almost feels like it could just be a shallow confession to try and get out of punishment. But we discover over in Psalm 51 that it is far, far from it. This psalm written by David in regard to this situation gives us the full uh, exposure of his heart in that moment. Verse 1 of Psalm 51 Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you are judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness in me, even from the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David says, I have done evil. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, no minimizing, no changing the story, no, it was a moment of weakness, blah, blah, blah. We've all heard it. We've all said it. I am that man. I have sinned. God, I have. I agree with you, God. I have hated you. How could I possibly do what I have done and claim any kind of affection for you in my heart? God, you're right. I hated you. I agree with you, God, to the degree and extent that I rejected you for the appetites of my heart. He prays, God, create in me a new heart, a pure heart. Why does David pray that? Why would David pray, create in me a pure heart? Because it ain't. God created me a pure heart because sitting here, even praying this prayer of confession, it's evil. I want evil. I desire evil. God, I need you to show up and create something in me that is not there. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, he says in Psalm 51, 12. Grant me a willing spirit to follow you. Why does he ask God to give him a spirit that is willing to follow God? Because he is far from claiming that he has a willing spirit to follow God. If left to his own devices, what does David do on the weekends? Kill people, commit adultery. God, I need you to change something in me because my operating system is out of whack. Something is messed up here. I need you to change me. Notice his confession is not, God, I promise never to do it again, or if I do, I'll try to keep it, I'll try to keep it to just, instead of murdering a guy, just put him in prison for a while. God, I'm going to try over time to do it less and less and less. He doesn't pray any of that malarkey. God, I've done wrong. I want to do wrong, because that's how I'm wired. And if anything is going to change God, you better show up and rewire the system here. What does Nathan say to David in that moment? David, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but God is an angry God. His hobby is smiting. He's a good smiter. He's been smiting since the beginning. And you're about to be smote. I don't even know if that's the right tense of that verb. Have, has, had, been smote, I think is what it is. Verse 13, Nathan replied, I don't know if you've read this verse before, but this verse should not be in the Bible. The Lord has taken away your sin. What? 
I mean, I, I don't understand that. The Lord has taken away your sin. Now, one of the ripples, he goes on in verse 14, one of the things that's going to happen as a result of what you've done, the baby is going to die. It's just a ripple from the stone you threw into the pond, but your sin's gone. Right after that, this is what's nuts about God here. He's crazy. Right after that, he brings Bathsheba after the baby has passed and the appropriate mourning has gone on. They once again come together, this time as husband and wife. This sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? She has a child, and who is that child? Solomon. Of the dozen wives that, that, that God could use to bring Solomon, why in the world would he reward this evil behavior, right? He doesn't reward the evil behavior, but when Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin, he was not joking. Solomon is born, the son who will sit on the throne, who will fulfill the promises of the Davidic covenant uh, to a degree that will finally be fulfilled by Christ. Right after that, Joab has a great victory over the Ammonites, and they go and have victory over the Ammonites, and David goes to the capital city and hoists the crown of the former king of the Ammonites onto his own head. The Lord has taken away your sin. Here is the son of the covenant. Here is victory over your enemies. What do we call that when we've done everything evil and God does everything good? There's a word for that. Grace. It's just grace. Let me explain something to you about 2 Samuel eleven twelve. This is not a story about bad behavior. This is a story of overwhelming, unconditional, can't be out grace of God. If anybody tells you this is a story about what not to do, they're full of it. And I mean that politely to all those theologians out there. It's a story about the fact that God is, in fact, that amazing. That a clod like David could experience this kind of grace, does that not give us a little bit of hope? Doesn't that shine a light into your heart that this week you did some stuff that weren't awesome? Wasn't awesome? Come on, seriously. I mean, there was a couple of things you did this week that you came in here today going, I hope nobody notices. And God is just that gracious gracious through Christ that he looks at us and says, I I take your sin away. Well, certainly, though, he's going to really smack me upside the head to let me know who's boss or fulfill all his promises in you just because he's that awesome. Psalm 32, just real quickly as we close. Psalm 32, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to if you don't want to. I'm going to read all six verses of Psalm 32 just relatively quickly here as as we go. This psalm maybe was written a similar time frame or about the same thing as Psalm 51, which is having in mind his uh, uh, sin with Bathsheba. Uh, Maybe not. Either way, it still applies. Blessed is the one, David says, uh, Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This may have been David's experience before Nathan came to him. He wasn't free of the shame. He was sapped with what had happened in his life. 
Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. Why would he do that? The end of verse 5, because you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 6, therefore let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You, God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Deliverance from what? His own sin, his own guilt. Just as a reminder here, the promise God made to David was not about David, was it? God is up to more than that. He's fixing the whole thing, redeeming the whole thing. And in fact, the Apostle Paul knew that, so he quoted from Psalm 32 in Romans 4. You can turn there if you want, or you can just follow along. Romans 4, 6. The Apostle Paul refers back to King David in Psalm 32. David says this when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteous apart from works. He quotes from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. So, so Paul says, listen, we receive forgiveness of God not by working, but rather by trusting. Our faith is what brings us righteousness. And David agrees with this. In his darkest hour, he went to God not with good works, but with faith that God is in fact a forgiving and gracious God. Blessing for David and for the Apostle Paul in Christ is not in being right. It is what? In being made right. The blessing that we have in God is not in being righteous. The blessing we have in God is being made righteous. We drown in the tide of our own appetites, as David described in Psalm 32. And the blessing is in the midst of the tide and the, and the drowning uh, feeling of our own sinful desires and our, our wicked hearts, we're being forgiven by a God who is gracious and full of mercy. Just one more reference back in Psalm 32. This is hard for some of you to accept. You've grown so used to a grumpy God who doesn't like bad people that it doesn't seem right that God would just flat out forgive us because He's the theological term for that. He is that awesome. So let me read what the Bible says to those of us who can't let go of grumpy God. Psalm 32, 9. Do not be like a horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. He is saying that. He's saying, why are we so stubborn to, to keep thinking we have to earn God's favor? Let go of the hardness of our heart that says we have to somehow gin up righteousness that God might notice us. That didn't work for David, and it will never work for us. It is God's grace that poured out on David the gift of the son of covenant, Solomon. It is God's grace on us that through Solomon, Jesus came that we might receive God's grace over and over through the work of Christ himself. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. 
having received new life in Christ, he says this, I do not understand what I do. This is the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you want to take your cues from this guy after I read this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Does that sound like David? Yes. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. I'm not righteous. Verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good. That's how we know he's a believer here, because without the presence of the Spirit, we do not have the innate desire to do God's things. But the fact is, he says, I cannot carry it out. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. If he started a sermon like this in our church, we'd probably ask him to, t- to stop. Somebody wants you go get squared away. Then come preach. So I find this law work in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law working in me, waging war against me. Life under the promise of Christ is a battle. It is a war. And as Paul would say, it's sometimes and oftentimes a losing battle filled with regret and shame and guilt. And so what are we to say to this? Verse 23, Romans 7. Or I should say verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Anybody ever had one of those days? Man, what a wretched man I am. Verse 25. I'm going to work really, really hard to pay God back for all the naughty stuff I did. No, it's not in there. Just making sure you're still with me. Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord, because if he doesn't, I'm hosed. If he doesn't, I'm sunk. Because this is me. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will save me? Jesus, every single time. He, he holds me and he keeps me. Don't be stubborn. Don't hold on to your righteousness as though you can curry favor with God. Don't hold on to your righteousness when you have succumbed to the evil appetites in your heart. Rather, instead, come to God who is, in fact, this awesome, that, that Paul would write this verse, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, certainly he's not talking about people as bad as Paul in Romans 7, right? How much condemnation is there for those of you who walked into here knee-deep in your struggle with sin? The theological term is zilcho. There is none. Uh, Nada. It's gone. There's no condemnation. He just gets rid of it. So I'm going to end with the question we asked at the beginning. What do we do when our life doesn't live up to the promise God has made us? The Bible is quite clear. Our lives don't live up to the promise we're under. We have a covenant of grace and a covenant of righteousness, and our lives often don't live up and measure up to this covenant. So what do we do? 
might I suggest something humbly, that we do what King David and the Apostle Paul did. Maybe it's time to stop trusting our ability to fix our stuff, and it's time to trust God, who is that great. I mean, do you really buy it that David could walk in to Nathan the prophet and say, you're right, I've sinned. And Nathan the prophet will say, it's not counted against you. Is it really true that that Paul could divulge for us the depth of his own struggle and he can then just follow that right up with, gleefully, joyfully, there's no condemnation, I'm dialed in. Trust the God of the Bible. I'm going to put it this way for the sake of summary. He didn't save us to live up to His promise is in Jesus. He saved us to live in His promises in Jesus. He did not save us to live up to the promises in Jesus. He saved us to live in His promises in Jesus. When we get to heaven, any reward we will receive will be a result of the work of Christ, not our notions of what's good. Think again of your Christian life. It's supposed to be a life with a light yoke. The means by which we remove the heavy yoke of righteousness is to finally stop being stubborn and say, you know what? Jesus made me righteous. He, he really is. He really is that great. He really does look at your stuff from this week, and, and he really does say, it is finished. Do you think you could serve a God like that? Do you think you could serve a God that in our flaws and uh, mess-ups and routine uh, sins that we just can't shake. And, and he says, listen, don't worry, I got it. I'm going to change you. Live in your love for me. Experience anew the grace of God. He didn't save us to live up to his promises in Jesus. He saved us to live in his promises in Jesus. Jesus.